Brian of Five Finger Lakes Distilling. I'm a Kenzie uh, of Five Finger Lakes. Just Finger Lakes Distilling. Finger Lakes, not Five Finger Lakes. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I was reading along. <laughs> I was going to say, that's cool. <laughs> five Finger. Well, I mean, it'd be weird if it was like three fingers or four fingers. Like, what, what happened to the rest of them? How many Finger Lakes are there, Brian? There's 11. So There's 11. Gotta... So it's like a, mu- a, mutant, a mutant hand. Yeah. <laughs> everyone welcome back to another episode of bourbon pursuit and as usual we got to hit a little bit of the news because we have some shout outs to first give and i've got to give a shout out to brad bonds from cork and bottle who you probably all know by now that runs the speakeasy or where you get all of the vintage and antique bottles at cork and bottle up in northern kentucky we got done doing our new riff barrel pick last week which awesome by the way it's a great experience good quality stuff that's coming out there too really excited to get that but we had the opportunity to go and sample some old dusties there and even one that was a banana cream liqueurs uh, from the 1930s from cuba so it was pretty interesting so remember if you've got old dusty bottles give brad a shout you can get his number at corkandbottle.com we also got to see our good friend ed bly while we were there too so big shout out to him the other big news that kind of happened this week and kind of shook the shook the bourbon world was that the Heaven Hill six-year bottled and bond white label that was a Kentucky-only release, the bottom shelf glory, has been announced that it's discontinued. That's it. Heaven Hill's pulling it from the ranks, not going to be able to find it on store shelves any longer. At least around here in Louisville, it's now down to one bottle per person per day. Uh, and through the grapevine, I've heard that there's probably less than a thousand cases remaining at the at the distributor. So it's going to go pretty quickly. So if you haven't had a chance yet, call your mules in Kentucky. Tell them to go get you a bottle or two and save it because this $14, $15 bottle is uh, going to be gone relatively soon. However, you know, we kind of talked about new Rift Barrel picks and I've got to always be selfish about this because guess what? We're out picking another barrel today. Yeah, getting ourselves a barrel of Knob Creek over at Jim Beam. Really looking forward to doing this. It's always a great experience to be able to do this as well as bring members of the Patreon community to do it as well. And if you're curious about, well, what barrel picks have been done? Are there any bottles left? Guess what? I went ahead and I made a list of all of our barrel picks and they are up to date on the Patreon site. You can actually click on it. It all mirrors back to a a Google Sheet, so you can actually see in real time what's available, what's coming, and what bottles are still available. And right now, if you can look at it and it doesn't have a green line through it, then that means there's still bottles available. And well, actually, it probably means that bottles haven't arrived yet because once they become available, they're going to be gone in about 24 hours. So. If you are curious what's been what's out there, what we've done in 2018, which is around, I think, 14, 16, 18 barrels, something around there. It's a lot. And with one more big announcement to come, go and check out patreon.com slash bourbon pursuit. You can see all the barrels that we have done. And then we've got some other things in store for 2019. That planning is going to start relatively soon as well. Also, recently, in another intro, I asked about different ways that People listen or watch this podcast, and this one came from another one of our listeners. He said it's 9.30 p.m. here in Central Florida. He's heading into work to do an inventory count from top to bottom. 
Long story short, it's a small but growing business and it never truly had an accurate count. So that's been his big job recently. He'll be there from 10 o'clock p.m. to about 8 a.m. So I'm relying on you guys, Colin Howard, Bill Simmons, and some degenerate NFL gamblers to get me through the night. I work a regular workday and come home for a little nap and heading back in now. So I appreciate the story and being able to understand what you all go through. So if you have interesting ways that you listen to Bourbon Suit, please tell us. We'd love to know more. As we had mentioned before, the Kentucky Derby Museum's Legend Series, those tickets are now on sale. Go and check it out because you've got Michter's, you've got Craft Night, and you've got Dixon of Kentucky Owl that are all be there in the next season. And the first one begins in January. So go get your tickets, derbymuseum.org slash legend series. Now, this episode is going to be pretty interesting because it's focused around New York. You know, a lot of the times we look at Kentucky as the bread and butter of where bourbon and rye and everything that we focus on is is right here in our backyard. However, there's a lot of things that are happening nationally that are starting to gain a lot of good recognition and with good reason too. I mean, rye is starting to be put back on the map by companies that are based out of Maryland and Pennsylvania. And now today you're gonna learn about Empire Rye. And these are distilleries that are based out of New York that are using New York grains. And it sort of has this bottled and bond feel to it where a lot of the rules and regulations that they're putting into it uh, really make it something that's truly New York, something that's truly uh, Empire Rye at the end of the day. So I think you're going to really enjoy this uh, this episode because you're going to learn and hopefully you can go in the area and maybe go pick up a few bottles. Let us know how it is. So make sure that if you do like the podcast, you subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app or wherever you get it. Or if you like a videos, you can go on YouTube or Facebook. And if the show notes are really hard to read on your device, go to bourbonpursuit.com, sign up for our mailing list, and you can get those every Thursday morning. And if you haven't done so yet, go to iTunes and write a damn review. We need them. That's what helps us grow. That's what helps us get found by other bourbon lovers that are out there. So please go take a few minutes to do that. We appreciate it. Whether it's good, good, bad criticism, doesn't matter. We'll take it. We just love getting feedback from all of our listeners that are out there. Lastly, as we had mentioned, as always, Patreon is how we help build and support this show. So you get cool things like t-shirts, koozies, stickers, barrel picks, access to barrel picks, patreon.com slash pursuit. At least give yourself a minute to go check it out and see if it's worth your time. We really hope it is because, as I said, that's what helped builds this. And this is how we continue to help grow the show to do bigger and better every single week. With that, enjoy this week's episode. And here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. In the past year, I have been extremely critical of President Trump for his trade policies and how they impact bourbon. I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times suggesting he may severely damage the industry and appeared on NPR, CBS This Morning, CNBC, and many others talking about how his trade policies will really hurt bourbon. See, I spent nearly 10 years studying bourbon trade, dating all the way back to the 1800s when Germany was buying barrels and shipping them via sailboats to their homeland. I became the leading source speaking about bourbon trade because the distillers didn't want to get on the president's bad side. And hey, I'm proud of the fact I can tell you about the bourbon tariffs in Argentina in the late 1950s. That's 200%, by the way. But in this, I got swept into the political debates that I truly never wanted to be a part of. 
When people heard my challenges toward Trump's trade policy, they took it as a stance against Republicans and the president, when I was really just speaking to what I believed and using historical anecdotes to make my case. Alas, that message was not clear. And my outspoken nature made a few personal friendships and family relationships quite uncomfortable. And I dare say, I made a few enemies along the way. Trump's administration did something I didn't think was possible, and I'm glad they did. Recently, they took NAFTA, tore it up, and did a new deal. The Distilled Spirits Council, the industry's leading national lobby, praised the new deal as it protects the standards and identity of bourbon. So we don't have to worry about that Mexican bourbon I mentioned in the New York Times. And while some retaliatory tariffs are still in the books, I have to give a credit where credit is due, and that's to the Trump administration for passing the New Deal. But I'd like to say that my stance was never a political one. It was always about bourbon and protecting bourbon. And I don't care who you are, if you threaten bourbon, I'm speaking up. You could say, in this tumultuous political climate, I belong to the modern bourbon party. Do you? And that's this week's Above the Char. Hey, do you have an idea for Above the Char? Ping me on Twitter or Instagram at Fred Minnick. That's at Fred Minnick, M-I-N-N-I-C-K. Until next week, cheers. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. And they're off for another Gift 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. Welcome back to the episode of the Bourbon Pursuit Podcast, the official podcast of bourbon. Just kidding today, but talking about an interesting topic that we have never done before on the show. This was by introduction of Blake from Bourboner that everybody is pretty familiar with by now as a, a good standing member of the bourbon community roundtable, runs the popular blog. And this was something he came to me and he said, there's a there's another thing that's happening and you should probably just 
get an idea of, of what's what's going on in different parts of the country. Because, you know, typically this show focuses on the big dogs that are happening in Kentucky. Uh, however, there is there's kind of this conglomerate of distilleries that are getting together up in New York and they're creating something that's called Empire Rye. And so that's really what we're going to discuss and really look at today is what is this? What makes it unique? What makes it different? Is it the location? Is it the type of grains? And I think we're going to go really in depth to see really what's making Empire Rye something that's unique to New York, uh, as well as what is going to be hopefully seen as something that you're going to start finding around the nation as well. So with that, let's go ahead and start introducing our guests. So I've got three people from representing three different distilleries today. So we've got Christopher Williams from Copper Sea Distilling, Alan Katz from New York Distilling, and Brian McKenzie from Finger Lakes Distilling. Fellas, welcome to the show. Howdy. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so, thanks so much. Absolutely. So I'm very happy to, to do this. I kind of want to go around the table real quick and let you all introduce each of yourselves, talk a little bit about your distillery, where you're located, um, you know, favorite flavor of cotton candy, whatever it is that you want to talk about, right? So uh, Brian, uh, you go first. All right. Well, yeah, thanks again for uh, putting this together. We're happy to be on the show. Um, so Finger Lakes Distilling, that's the, uh, my company here uh, up on Seneca Lake, um, kind of right in the heart of Finger Lakes wine country. And uh, we've been uh, in business since 2008. Um, we were one of the first uh, farm distilleries licensed in uh, New York State. Uh, New York's a pretty interesting state to do business in because uh, they have really uh, changed some laws that uh, make it an attractive place to do business. We're, uh, I mentioned we're a farm distillery, uh, so we source uh, most all of our ingredients from uh, New York State farms. Um, that's a requirement. And uh, in exchange for that, uh, we have some liberties in the way we can do business. But um, got into the business uh, just to big change in career. I was working in the banking industry. I had a transition with that and um, just had always been passionate about spirits and how they're made. Um, being from the Finger Lakes, I uh, thought that a distillery would be a really nice addition to the the tourism generated from the, the wine business and everything. So um, it was more in line with what I enjoyed and just thought it would be kind of a cool business for the area. So um, we got started back in 2008 after a year or two of, um, you know, planning and, you know, acquiring our property and equipment and everything. And, um, whiskey has really been something that we've been uh, most passionate about. Although we make 15 different spirits, we do vodkas and gins and liqueurs and everything like that, all from local fruit and grain. Um, but the whiskey, uh, has, as I mentioned, been, been really what we're most passionate about. We make bourbon, uh, we make rye, uh, we make some single malt that we haven't even released yet. Uh, and the rye was really something that we got into right away. Um, basically, uh, just decided that that was a hot spirit in the, in the market and uh, something that we enjoy drinking. So we started to make the rye back in 2008 and released our first batch. Uh, I think it was at Whiskey Fest in 2010. And it's really been our best-selling product since then. So when the uh, idea came up, along for Empire Rye. It was definitely something we wanted to be part of. And I think it's going to be uh, a great project for all of us. Well, awesome. We'll definitely dive into that uh, a little bit more. That was a great introduction. So Chris, I'll let you go next. Yeah, I'm Christopher Williams. I'm the chief distiller at Copper Sea Distilling. <clears throat> uh, we've been um, distilling in the Hudson Valley of New York uh, 
since, uh, well, we started the, the company in 2011 and, and we're fully licensed by uh, early 2012 and um, started producing then. And we also take advantage of the New York Farm Distillery License class um, and the, the ample benefits that we get from that uh, from that license class, which which requires a distillery to use a minimum of seventy five percent New York State grown grain uh, or well agricultural product, depending on what you're making. If you're making whiskey, obviously it's predominantly going to be about grain. Uh, and our, our philosophy was actually always to to do that. Actually, our our goal was to use and 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 what we do is use one hundred percent Hudson Valley grain specifically. Um, our approach of coppercy is something we call heritage methods distilling, um, just sort of our, our catch-all term for creating whiskey with, with the provenance of our locale, which is the Hudson Valley. Um, so all of our grains coming from either our farm, we have a 75-acre uh, certified organic farm in uh, New Paltz um, in uh, Ulster County. And we also use again, what we call heritage methods that includes things like simple direct-fired copper pot still so literally you know an actual fire under the pot in the manner that it that uh, whiskey was made in the um you know early in the 19th century 18th century in the region uh we do all of our own malting in-house on the floor of the distillery in the traditional manner so all the malt from our whiskey is coming from from our malt house uh, in the case of our bourbon um which is called excelsior bourbon uh, we actually even um started our own cooperage with a partner several years ago to, to source oak uh, New York American white oak in state and, and have it converted into barrel. So our approach is very, <laughs> it's intensely nerdy, uh, very hands-on and, uh, and, um, you know, we're, we're not steampunks or anything. I don't come to work in period dress, but we try to, we try to keep it, um, in the spirit, what I say in the spirit of uh, 19th century farm distilleries in, in the region. Well, that's awesome. And I also want to say, Chris, thanks for coming on today because I know you, uh, you're yelling at kids or something this week and you almost lost your voice. Was that what it was? Well, it's probably a combination of, of yelling at kids. I don't have to yell at my kids that much, but <laughs> yeah, kids are just, they're, they're awful vectors. They're, they're worse than, they're worse than ticks. They're, they're full of diseases all the time. So I'm, <laughs> I'm riddled with them and I have three kids. So it's pretty much a nonstop. Right. <laughs> I, I know the feeling all too well, not with three, but uh, just, <laughs> being constant sick or something that's always going around at daycare or anything like that. So I, I know how that is. So Alan, go ahead. Uh, so I'm with New York distilling company and we've been open since late 2011 and in listening to the guys describe their history and business, we're somewhere in between. We're an urban distillery based in Williamsburg and Brooklyn. We're not farmers, but we also have the class D farm distillers license uh, we make gin and rye whiskey. And from a personal standpoint, my background came from uh, environment of bars, restaurant bars, and bartending. And our outlook when we got started was focusing on spirits that we could lay claim to as, if you will, purposefully different, something that was unique, but not so esoteric. And where we ended up was a focus on gin and rye with a look backward to, if you will, the first golden age of cocktail culture in the mid to late 19th century up until prohibition and a little bit more forward thinking as well to see how the rediscovery of those spirits specifically has taken place now in what many myself included would call the second golden age of cocktail culture particularly in places like new york and not just new york city but around new york state through the mid-atlantic california internationally now 
and participating in this rejuvenation and renewed celebration of spirits that heretofore were really unknown. And in the context of whiskey, as much as I love bourbon, I love drinking bourbon, we sell a lot of bourbon at our bar attached to the distillery, but um, we only make rye whiskey and want to celebrate that as part of the cultural heritage of New York uh, in many ways, first and foremost, but also as a resolute American spirit and try and put our own take primarily vis-a-vis the grains that we're growing in partnership with uh, one primary farmer up near Brian's neck of the woods uh, in near Seneca Lake uh, and how we can treat these grains in a wine context as people would look at grapes and how you might stress the bunches of grapes or the vines that are growing the grapes to produce the most concentrated flavor uh, by by pruning, by developing, in some cases, by creating hybrids. Uh, and, and that's what our focus is on. And I think just like Brian and Chris, you know, this is a, a game, if you will, of great passion, but also great patience. And so while we've all been doing this for several years, I think we feel similarly, we're just on the precipice while we've been making this whiskey now for six years going on. We're just at the point now where we feel like we have enough of an inventory that we can pick and choose from, learn enough about the whiskey we've produced and have been aging to start releasing it in not only interesting quantities, but interesting profiles that we feel we can replicate and offer up to the public. That's awesome. So there is a, there's one thing that Chris had mentioned I thought was interesting about uh, the oak that you guys are using as well. I mean, are you guys sourcing barrels from independent stave or is it something that's local that is in the area? Like what's, what's your all's barrel situation like? Well, my, my specific uh, barrel situation, for the most part, I source most of my oak from Kelvin Cooperage. Uh, the only exception that I had mentioned there, uh, our bourbon is, um, is aged in hundred percent New York oak uh, from a Cooperage. We, we co-developed up in the Adirondack several years ago. Um, so that was the, the reference I was making to, to New York oak specifically. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I found that interesting. I, I didn't think I've heard of uh, New York oak before, so that was uh, that was a new one. Which I don't really know if like the the oak and different parts of the the country really affected. Because honestly, I haven't talked to a lot of the uh, the cooperages around here to kind of see if you know where they're sourcing the trees from are really yeah, affecting uh, it. Yeah, I was just. It's a very interesting topic and very timely. I was at a conference on Friday about the terroir. I'm not sure this was the right term to describe it, but the terroir of New York State. And obviously, New York State geographically is very large. Uh, you're going to have microclimates within the state. Uh, you know, the biology in different parts of the state is going to be considerably different. But if you just use that for for ease of sake as a catch-all, I have no doubt that oak would contribute uh, to terroir. The oak that grows here is going to be different than the oak that grows in Missouri or other parts of the country. For the time being, we're using barrels primarily from Independence Dave and from Kelvin. And it, for us, it's just about a learning process. It's also very honestly about the economics of it and how we can buy barrels at our scale in bulk. Uh, our first year distilling rye, you know, six years ago, I don't think we filled much more than 22 barrels. And we're only using 53-gallon barrels uh, for our products. But, but last year, we filled just shy of 1,000 barrels. And so at a certain point, that economy of scale is, is real dollars and real figures in trying to keep the water line under our chin. Absolutely. At best. What I can say about, uh, th- I strongly believe that, that oak does have a significant 
part to play in the terroir uh, aspect or the provenance aspect of a whiskey. We um, we actually only use it for our bourbon, and and that was a point. That what part of it is the availability of New York oak uh, and our ability to have it coopered in in uh, in the quantities that we need. But bourbon, I think, as opposed to rye, really is is fundamentally about the oak. Um, and and we can start to talk about the distinction the distinctions between these two these two categories these uh, these spirits. But bourbon. You know, coming from a bourbon is is a spirit that at its base is fifty one percent corn. Corn, and to my opinion, uh, there's not a lot of there there. You know, a, a high corn based spirit. I think corn is you know it has a flavor, but it's fairly mild. That's why we have the flavoring grains in bourbon, whether it's rye or wheat for weeded bourbons, uh, to kind of add a little dimension there to the uh, to the mash bill to the flavor of the grain. But you know, coming, you know, I think this is out of Buffalo Trace's own warehouse X experiments. I think we've we've learned that now up to seventy five percent of the flavor of a bourbon is coming from the oak it's aged in. You know, so for us making a a New York bourbon, it was very important to have New York oak uh, as opposed to the rye. You know, uh, rye is just a very aggressive grain in a in a whiskey. Um, you know, it's very present. You know, you know you're drinking rye. You you know you're drinking a, a high rye bourbon. Um, for that matter. And, uh, you know, it wasn't as fundamental for us to use New York Oak for that in terms of the provenance aspect. Absolutely. And I guess one question to kind of tag along with their um, kind of question that rolled in is, you know, with, you know, you had mentioned, Alan, with the microclimates. I mean, is there is there a difference in the way the barrel is constructed for uh, aging in New York versus somewhere else, whether it needs to be thicker or less thin or anything like that? Do you have any idea? I don't. I don't have an idea. But if I had to surmise, I would say that there isn't. There's a you know standard stave width. You know you can find different things depending on the size of the barrel. Particularly in our cases, at least for now, for fun, we look at larger casks, larger butts like sherry butts that we might put a secondary age for experimentation at this point. But for the most part, it's a standard. You know, and if we just look in this country, although you know the microclimates are going to play a part. Over over time, uh, you know, even between say Kentucky and Tennessee and New York, the variation in climate today is not that different. Very generally, they have a longer summer, we have a slightly longer winter. But uh, you know, if, if you're talking about years of aging, a lot of that will even out. But but I do think that the oak is, as Christopher was saying, sort of that's an experiment that I would find worthwhile because I do think there will be something distinctively unique the same as the grains i mean that's part of our ex- experimentation whether it's with our own whiskeys individually or empire rye as a category is to see in time if there's something not unique perhaps to discerning a terroir from rye grown in the middle of the state or upstate new york right well i think we're getting a little off track so let's let's kind of take it back to the, the rye here so there was alan you had also said something else and maybe this is uh something to kind of talk about before we go into the idea behind Empire Rye is you had mentioned the culture of sure. rye with inside of New York. And perhaps I don't know the history behind it. Maybe you all can enlighten me and as well as the listeners of, of what is the culture of rye in New York and the history behind it? Well, there's two different things. There's the drinking of rye and there's the production of rye. And certainly the production of rye in its most faceted format, you know, certainly comes a little bit more concertedly out of the Mid-Atlantic the most notorious uh, rye distiller uh, going back to the late 18th century was George Washington. 
and while that was something for easy consumption, certainly more healthy than drinking water at the time, what grew out of alcohol usage by and large and some American cultural sensibility was cocktails. And New York City and places uh, even like Buffalo and St. Louis and New Orleans and San Francisco really gave rise to uh, this sensibility of American cocktail culture. And if you go back to the earliest cocktail books from the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, the brown spirit of choice, not ubiquitously, but far outpacing any other American spirit, such as bourbon, was rye whiskey. And so I think that's certainly part of the fascination and in some way a reclamation on our part, whether we're drinking it or from the standpoint of the three of us, distilling it and making rye whiskey specifically is in part reclaiming that sensibility of American gastronomic culture uh, and applying it, certainly in our case, to to how people might have considered rye once upon a time and how they might certainly today or in the future. I think it's important to note that there is a strong history of rye production in New York State, too. Um, and, uh, you, you know, people think of Pennsylvania, Maryland, but, uh, you know, back in the mid to late 19th century, there was a, a ton of rye produced in this state. And, uh, you know, I think that's part of the reason we're really excited about this project is we're kind of going back, uh, you know, to, to a, a product that was, was, we were really known for. Um, and I, I know Christopher's done a lot of research about the history of distilling in New York. He can probably comment more on, on that kind of topic, but, uh, you know, th- there is a strong history there. Well, I'll try not to overburden this with the uh, the, de- the finer points of the arcane uh, history of New York distilling. But yeah, I mean, we do. We have a rich, a rich history in this state. Uh, as I was researching it years ago to develop a couple of talks that I, that I, uh, I, I will sometimes deliver pressed, uh, it actually it made, me very, it, it made me very sad to realize what prohibition really did to um, the culture of distilling in the Northeast and in New York specifically, there were whole styles and methodologies, uh, brands that were richly conceived and and being developed that, you know, would, if, if not for prohibition, would probably be right up there with brands like Jim Beam or Old Forester today. Like they would be on par. We'd be looking at those almost as uh, as ubiquitously as we see on the shelf, uh, these these big story brands out of Kentucky, you know, and, and that's just the way the cards fell after Prohibition. Those Kentucky distilleries, for whatever reason, they had maintained their infrastructure, whether it was government contracts and all that sort of stuff. That just didn't happen in the Northeast. Pennsylvania, Maryland, New York, those were the big rye-producing states. Uh, they just didn't rebound. And, and at that point, bourbon became king, and rye was consigned to the, the dustbin of American you know, drinking history. Um, and so, yeah, it's very exciting to, to be uh, with this group of, you know, excited, interested distillers who, you know, really see the, the potential to, to, to reclaim that heritage for the state. And so I guess that's, that's a good segue into the idea of empire rise. So I kind of want to just, whoever wants to take it, like who is the idea that's, or who kind of started figuring out like, okay, let's, let's band some people together. Let's figure out what this looks like. Is it a common recipe among everyone? Like, so what, what is, what is the idea of empire rye? Whoever wants to take it. Well, 
it was a, I think it was a joint, it was utterly a joint effort of initially six distilleries and then um, another distillery by chance after we had uh, come up with the, the basic concept uh, we found out had actually made a conforming whiskey uh, without even knowing it. And, and so they were included later. And uh, the, the initial distilleries were Coppersy Distilling, um, Finger Lakes Distilling, New York Distilling Company, uh, Tuttletown Spirits, which, which produces Hudson whiskey, um, Black Button Distilling up in uh, Buffalo. Uh, I think I said, did I say King's Rochester. County? Rochester. Uh, sorry, in Rochester. And then uh, King's County Distilling, in, also in Brooklyn. So what was, what was awesome is that we, we kind of found each other and um, talked about it periodically over the course of a couple of years as this like pie in the sky idea. We should develop this style of whiskey. You know, we should make a, a whiskey style for New York State. Won't that be cool? And then we all kind of, you know, went back home and went about our business and, and forgot about it. So I, I think uh, I think I was probably just the most initially excited by this. You were. Movie. You absolutely were. So I, 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 if, 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 if uh, in the history of, of, of Empire Rye, I think I, I could be the John Adams. I was just the guy who wouldn't shut up about it. I <laughs> like, kept on telling everybody, we should do this. We should do this until finally, you know, if, if for no other reason than to get me to stop asking, uh, we all finally came together uh, about, actually about three years ago this month. Uh, and, and over the course of about a month, uh, the six, the group of six, um, hammered out, you know, debated, and I think we went through six drafts, uh, what the, what the requirements to be called Empire Rye would be. And so let's, let's dive into that. So if, uh, if Brian or Alan want to kind of want to take over, what is, when you start looking at this drafting process, what were those elements that you were looking at to be considered something that is an Empire Rye? We obviously wanted to focus in on, um, you know, utilizing New York State agricultural product with with this, so uh, we set the minimum of seventy five percent New York State rye to be used. Um, we wanted to uh, also kind of distinguish uh, with some proof. Um, so we, you know, we're trying to balance out the uh, you know some of the federal requirements for uh, rye with um, also making it a bit distinctive for New York State. So we uh, set a barrel proof maximum of 115, um, which uh, you know I think maybe leads to some different uh, flavor profiles in that re- regard. We also put a two-year age requirement on it, so you know all the Empire ryes would be regarded as uh, straight whiskeys. Uh, and I think that covered most of, uh, it, you know, beyond that, we, we left a lot of room for uh, experimentation, you know, whether you wanted to utilize uh, malted rye, uh, other uh, grains, uh, flavoring gra- grains uh, for your mash bill. Uh, but the 75% is really an important component of it being New York State rye. And if, you, if you're considering this a New York State rye, an empire rye, is the grain source you primarily saying like you need to source all your grains from New York or is it saying, you know, at this point you can kind of take it anywhere. I mean, if you want to say that uh, somebody in Tennessee wants to produce an empire rye, like, is that a possible, is that a possibility? I believe we, we did uh, specify that it has to be produced in New York state. 
What about the uh, the grain sourcing? I mean, is that something that you have to get something that is from localized farmers, or is that something that's just kind of like that's ah, a little gray area wherever you can get your your grains? Well, there's some there's some flexibility with the remaining twenty five percent, but the uh, the seventy five percent rye has to be grown in New York. And so some of you have that ability to be able to source it locally at your own farms. Uh, some of you are getting it from other places. Um, you know, one thing that was kind of interesting, you said a, a barrel proof max of 115, um, which is uh, pretty unique because it seems a little, uh, my opinion, a little low, right? I mean, some of them are up to, at least sometimes when you dump them in barrels, it, it's 160 proof and stuff like that. So why, why the, the low proof uh, on the rye whiskey for the barrel proof max? Well, if you look at the, the historical, from a historical perspective, uh, going in at a hundred proof, a hundred to one hundred and five proof was actually industry standard for even bourbon distilleries prior to prohibition. Uh, the one hundred and twenty-five proof max that's set by the federal government—I uh, don't necessarily know exactly how how that was arrived at. Ultimately, I, I would expect that a, a decent amount of pressure from uh, from the from the industry probably pushed it up that high. You get different. You get different flavors from the barrel. Uh, there are water-soluble compounds and ethanol-soluble compounds that you extract from the oak. So those are going to give you different flavors uh, depending on what proof you go in at. Um, so pre-prohibition whiskeys would have would have been known for having flavors that were a little different than what we think of as bourbon or rye today that go in at those high proofs. The other thing that happens when you go in at a low proof is the same time you're aging your your, your whiskey, your ethanol, you're simultaneously aging the water for that whole period of time. So, for example, if you were to go in at 125, the industry max, and then bottle at 180, uh, sorry, at 80 proof, uh, which is, you know, the standard sort of bottle proof that, that you can expect on a shelf, that means that you have to get from 125 proof out of the barrel all the way down to 80 proof with the addition of flavorless water you know, right out of the tap or right through your filter, as opposed to, you know, I, I go in at, at Copper Sea, we go in at 105 across the board for all our whiskeys and I, pr and I bottle proof to 96. So that's a significantly lower volume of flavorless water that I'm adding to my finished whiskey, which means there's a lot more flavor in that bottle. Mm -hmm. Alan, uh, any other comments on the? Uh, yeah, I, th the I think it's it, it's you know the easiest term I can use is it's a very interesting hedge. Again, when you're talking about something that, as Christopher said, started about three years ago, you're putting whiskey in barrels, and you just in some ways it's not going to be bad, but you're crossing your fingers to see how interesting it might be. Anecdotally, from our experience, you know our original fantasy, if you will, was we're going to make American rye. It's going to be a straight rye whiskey. And at two years, we took our whiskey out of the barrel. These were barrels that we had put in at 125, frankly, of our original mash bill uh, at 72% um, rye. And it wasn't bad. It just wasn't that interesting. And so we let it go another year. And that was sort of the magic dynamic for us. And where we were aging our barrels uh, was a minimum of three years. And so henceforth, we don't really release anything Less than that, what I find, you know, at the 115 that we find very interesting is, as Christopher's saying too, is you know, the flavor components can be astoundingly different. And, you know, some of the rationale, I assume, I don't know this factually, but I assume 
that the federal government ultimately went to 125 is, again, the profit in alcohol is not in the booze itself. It's in water. Once upon a time, there weren't a lot of 80-proof spirits that were higher, just the way the three of us are uh, putting out spirits at, at higher bottling proofs today. But as it came down and as you get conglomerates and companies that grow, and perhaps if they're public companies, they really have to look at every detail and how it affects the bottom line. And at 80 proof, you know, you could say across any number of spirits, not just whiskey or rye specifically, that you're trying to find some modicum where you still taste the essence of that spirit, but you can get as much profit out of, out of it as possible. So I very much appreciate you know, Christopher, Christopher's angle on this, where the less water we have to add after aging, the more retention there is of the authentic flavor. Again, perhaps we'll know in time the authentic terroir of what we're not only growing, but, but distilling and aging. And so the other thing was kind of talking about the, the two-year age minimum, too. As somebody knows, that is, that is the, the definition for being, uh, at least the age for being a straight, uh, assuming that you guys are not adding any uh, flavors or additives that falls within that 2.5% range as well. It's just a, just a given. Um, but the other thing is when you, when you taste a, a whiskey that is a, a two-year rye versus, say, like a two-year bourbon, uh, it seems like a rye whiskey is able to develop a lot more flavors. It's able to almost mature a lot faster uh, than a bourbon at a two, three, or even four-year range. Uh, do you all agree or disagree with that? If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus Magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> uh, a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And you can get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com bourbon. But the other thing is when you when you taste a, a whiskey that is a, a two-year rye versus say like a two-year bourbon, uh, it seems like a rye whiskey is able to develop a lot more flavors. It's able to almost mature a lot faster uh, than a bourbon at a two, three, or even four-year range. Uh, do you all agree or disagree with that? I agree. Uh, I, I feel like um, not, not only that, I think you start to lose some of the uh, – 
the characteristics of rye whiskey as you uh, age it further. Uh, some of that kind of nice spicy note. Um, we actually uh, age our whiskeys. Um, uh, we continue to release our rye in the, the three to four year range, uh, even though we had some older whiskey, um, it, just because we prefer the the flavor components there. Um, whereas, you know, the bourbon, I think, uh, does require a little more time in the barrel. I just, yeah, I think it also goes back to the, the point I was trying to make earlier about, <clears throat> you know, bourbon really fundamentally being about the oak. The longer you're putting, you know, a, a relatively mild, uh, substrate corn uh based liquor into a barrel the 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 higher the dividends are going to be whereas rye which i mean unaged rye which frankly would have been a a common tipple all the way from 1776 when you know we stopped drinking rum and started making rye in the northeast because that was what we could make from our from our uh homemade you know our homegrown grain even up to the early 20th century, unaged rye would have been a fairly common uh, drink in this region. And, and the reason is because rye just has a lot of flavor out of the gate. For us, again, it depends what you want to do with the finished whiskey. Uh, whether, it, again, for us starting at 72 and then moving to a 75% rye component in our mash bill, we're still you know, very attuned to how our whiskey is going to be used in very standard cocktails, Manhattans, Old Fashions, whiskey sours. And the one other factor, whether it's bourbon or rye, that we find is we're not at a point where we can really assess whether we're overaging. I don't think we're there yet personally. Um, but between two years, three years, four years, five years, et cetera, and those still what we, are, at our point, feel like are early days, aside from the interaction with the oak is we're getting annual evaporation we're losing about 5% a year to evaporation, about 5% just in the first couple of months to absorption. And we are allowing for a significant amount of concentration of flavors, I believe, year over year. And for us at New York Distilling, really digging into trying to find some of the unique fruit flavors associated with a higher profile rye has been really fascinating, particularly working with a few different varieties of, of rye itself, where some will produce over, you know, really between three, four, and five years, a lot of darker cherry flavors or sort of the fleshier pinkish peach flavors more than the yellow peach flavors. Uh, we've got a couple of varieties. One, a fun antique variety called Horton Rye, which dates back a couple centuries in its uh, original incarnation as a, a rye from New York State that are really producing tropical notes, pineapple, mango, really fascinating, but it's a much much shorter grain stock than the typical rise that, that we've been able to obtain from different farmers in New York. So at time, time it can be different things. It, obviously, interaction with wood, but I think the evaporation and its influence on concentration of flavors is, is uniquely significant as well. That's interesting to talk about the, uh, at least with the rye portion of it. You know, there's also something that I, I noticed when I was looking at empirerye.com and looking at the the standards that has been set, sort of set forth. And, you know, Brian, you had mentioned that, you know, 25% of the mash bill can be composed of any raw or, or malted grain. And what is, what's, what's some of the thing, some of the things that you all are experimenting with, with that other kind of 25%, you know, maybe you guys are giving away some, some secrets, you know, between your distilleries or you don't want to say it or not, but, you know, no. give some ideas of, of kind of what is that, what are those other grains that you're, you're looking at doing? Yeah. I, 
I don't think, I think that's one thing amongst this group. I think people really like to be transparent about what we're doing. Uh, so, you know, nobody's really super secretive in this, this, uh, this organization, but um, let let all your secrets out. Um, you know, we, our, our existing, uh, Mackenzie Rye is, is actually conformed to the, uh, standards of Empire Rye. So we, we just stuck with, uh, with what we were doing, which is, uh, 80% rye, 20% malted barley. Uh, we did do a special release of a, a barrel that we, um, put, put up when we actually, uh, kind of finalized the plan for Empire Rye. But I, I, I think some of the group, um, you know, took liberties with, uh, you know, Obviously, using some corn in their mash bills. Uh, I believe Christopher did a significant um, portion of malted rye, or maybe even 100% malted rye. Um, yeah. So, so I mean, like I said before, there there was a, a ton of flexibility for how you create uh, your empire rye. We just wanted to put some, you know, guidelines in. Uh, uh, so, so there's some you know, underlying characteristic that uh, that that everybody can kind of get their head around when they think of empire rye. Yeah. In much the same way that, uh, in much the same way that bourbon has a huge amount of flexibility in terms of, uh, what, what you can call a bourbon. Obviously there's a sort of a baseline standard understanding, uh, that a lot of people kind of stick to, but, and I, I, I see this a lot more also in the craft space. You know, you see things like one of our other empire rye colleagues, uh, uh, Kings County Distilling, you know, they make a bourbon that includes peated, uh, peated barley, malted barley that's, that's peated, you know, so, uh, and there's no rule that says you can't do that. You know, the other, the other standards of bourbon are conformed to, but there's all this room to play. So we wanted to make sure that the, the requirements allowed us to, to put our personality, our distillery's personality uh, and methodologies into the mix while also having, yes, yeah, some some clear-cut process and ingredient requirements that would allow upon, for example, a tasting flight, a, 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 a ver- a, what, what do you call it, a vertical tasting, a horizontal tasting, whatever, some kind of directional tasting, uh, would allow you to, to try to sense these commonalities. Like what is the thread of, of the style that you can follow through all of these different expressions? I mean, that's really where the fun comes in. And we've already got bars uh, in New York City that have Empire Rye flights on the menu. And um, you know, people are really excited about that to, to be able to, to, to follow the progression of this, this concept. And so what are those other things that you're experimenting with, Chris? I mean, you know, you said the 100% <laughs> malted barley, but what are those other kind of grains? Malted rye, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sorry, so, malted rye. yeah, yeah. So we, uh, yeah, our, our main, so, you know, some of us have gone in whole hog. I'd say uh, the three distilleries, you're talking to here have made a very strong commitment right out of the gate to, to the concept. Uh, some of the other distilleries are, uh, you know, they already have another rye that they're very proud of and rightly so. And then, and then they're, they're stacking the empire rye, uh, compliant stuff, uh, into their mix. Um, uh, we did, uh, ours is called Bonacue Crag straight rye malt and it's a hundred percent malted rye. Uh, I've also started laying down a, a second mash bill for a, for sort of a, a single barrel concept down the, down the road. And that's a little bit more like a standard, uh, standard rye. So more like that sort of 80, 80, 20 sort of malt, you know, rye to, uh, malted barley kind of mash bill, but we'll play around. You can, this also gives us the opportunity to play around with different barrel finishes if we want. Uh, there's even a provision 
in the uh, in the Empire Rise standards to create a blended Empire Rise, so groups of us can actually get together and and combine to uh, to come up with something that's you know maybe a little more complex than the sum of its parts. You're gonna steal one of my next questions, so thanks for doing that. <laughs> I think Alan had something to say before I. It was like we're jumping the horse there. Yeah, go ahead, Alan. I kind of want to hear what you guys are doing. Just for comparison, we're we're. I would say fairly standardized. Uh, our, our mash bill is 75 rye and 13 corn, 12% malted barley. And we stuck to that over the last couple of years since, since this uh, has been institutionalized, if you will. And our effort probably will be more focused on, on aging and seeing how far we can take it into to, uh, you know, some sense of significant aging and, and probably also secondary barrel finishes to the point, in fact, that our initial Empire Rye offering is actually a, a product with a secondary barrel finish. Actually, uh, uh, it goes from our once used three, uh, excuse me, two year rye to a once used Applejack barrel, straight Applejack barrel uh, to give it just a little bit of, uh, of that unique quality finish to it. But uh, for us, we're, we're in, so enthusiastic. We basically converted our entire methodology over to our Empire Rye uh, recipe or mash bill. And I, I would think it's a, a really exciting possibility, obviously not just for the diversity of products that are going to come out of our colleagues in New York State, but also how we, if you will, export it through marketing, whether domestically or internationally. I think the the interest is, is so enthusiastic for rye as a category that this is going to be a very unique and celebrated subcategory within American rye whiskey. And so when I was looking at uh, the standards as well, I think whoever you know, when you all are crafting this up, I, I, I think that you probably had the bottled and bond rules like on the side of it. And you're looking at here and then looking at here and trying to do some comparisons because there's also something that we hadn't uh, mentioned or talked about in saying that this has to be mashed, fermented, distilled, barreled and aged at a single New York state distillery in a single distilling season. Right. So it sounds very uh, synonymous what's what's happening with bottle and bond was there some of that commonality that you were really shooting for within those those laws and uh, regalities whoever wants to take it i think that we yeah so in the it was a it was a it was a really fun debate and conversation when we uh when we came up with these these rules and i actually think it was ralph Lorenzo from from tuttletown spirits we were talking about how do we ensure that that there's a little how do we ensure the, the the sanctity, so to speak, of of the concept, so that it doesn't get co-opted uh, if it is successful, which it will be, uh, and uh, and so we were we were talking about you know these different provisions that we would include. And Ralph Lorenzo said, "Why don't we just include the language of the Bottled and Bond Act in our provision because it's basically a vetted uh, rubric for ensuring craft." Uh, you know, the people don't really think about this, but the Bottled and Bond Act was basically the, the craft debate well before the craft instilling movement even even started, you know, before prohibition even was underway. This debate was already happening. There was this this uh, this battle between rectifiers and actual distilleries. And the actual distilleries went to the federal government and said, We need some kind of provision that creates a reassurance in the marketplace to the buyer. That what they're getting was actually produced by the distillery in question, and and is a and is a, a product 
that um, is not going to make the marketplace lose faith in the industry. And so that's what the Bottle and Bond Act was. So we kind of looked at it and we're like, well, that's exactly what we're trying to accomplish anyway. And it also had the added benefit of making it so that in order to conform to the Empire Rise standard, you would inherently have to be making a whiskey that could be bottled as a bottled and bond product if you chose to do so. So basically, any any Empire Rye compliant whiskey, once it reaches four years old, if the distiller chooses to do so, can offer it as as a bottled and bond product. That's certainly in our plans. Yeah, I was going to say, Alan, you kind of had something you wanted to add there. It seemed like no, that 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 Christopher makes the point very clearly that that's certainly in our plans is to have that option. Uh, You know, we we're a year away from having that. that meets all qualifications, including the age statement and the mash bill minimums. So we'll see how it tastes. And it might be a four-year bottle and bond, or maybe it, it needs to be a five-year bottle and bond. But but for us at this point, as long as we, you know, we sort of hold the reins here and, and keep things under control, we'll, I think we all want to be able to have flavor rule the day and have something that's interesting and uniquely our own, but but also that can if you will be traced back or attributable to the qualities of, of what we perceive to be the influences of growing the grains and aging them here in New York. And so there was actually a question that came in from uh, Frank Mitlick. He, he's, he's watching this and he said, who's actually enforcing the standard? Um, if you look at it and you kind of look at it and you say, okay, we can, we can get a bunch of distilleries on. Uh, and then, yeah, sure. Maybe, hopefully, they're all in it for the right reasons. They're not just taking the empire name and slapping a label on it. Uh, but instead, is there anybody that is enforcing the standard, or is it just a, a, a bond of trust really amongst everybody right now? Well, the the, the plan is to have uh, a a group that will enforce. You know, that make sure that people are adhering to the criteria. Um, we've also you know, gone down the road with trademark protection and that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, it's only as good as, uh, you know, the, the strength of, uh, of, of the, the actual criteria. So if, if uh, you know, I think it's going to be really important that we do uh, enforce all that as the, uh, the mark becomes more common. The other, the, one of the sort of, and I don't even know that we really intended this. It just kind of happened this way. The 75% New York State grown rye requirement so, so many of us, pretty much all of the producers of Empire Rye, and most, most of the whiskey producers in New York State, have the farm distillery license class. And that's usually what they're producing their rye under. Now, that license class requires that you be using a minimum of 75% New York State-grown product, period. So the Empire Rye designation requires that that 75% be New York State-grown rye. So in a way the state's enforcement already kind of covers that aspect of it. Um, you know, we have to be using 75% New York state grown product anyway to maintain our license class. So that, that 75% new that has to be rye is a fairly simple ask since most of us are doing that anyway, it's, it's almost not a, a, an issue. The other things like barrel proof that it actually be made at a New York state distillery. A lot of these things are, you know, the barrel proof stuff, I mean, that's going to be in your records for the TTB. So, you know, a lot of it's honor system at this point, you know, I think most of us are so invested in trying to make sure that this concept 
be well regarded in the marketplace. Absolutely. There's not a lot of concern that anybody's, you know, nobody's going and checking anybody's distillery. There's no inspector general or major domo going around and making sure that, you know, doing surprise inspections. <laughs> it's mostly and, and like 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 Brian said, we kind of I think in, in New York we have a kind of a pride in being fairly transparent. We're all very committed to making sure that that the states uh you know, distilling landscape is respected that that brand of New York state spirits in general is, um, is one that people will be proud of and, and, and that will have weight in the marketplace. So. Yeah, I'm sure there's a, there's a paper trail too, right? You you had mentioned that you guys are probably all very well connected. Um, if you're sourcing the rye from somebody else, I'm sure that you'll be able to go back and be able to see like, oh yeah, well, they just got it from there, right? So there's probably no need for, as you said, an inspector general or checks and balances between everybody because I'm sure you, you're all, you got plenty of work to do yourselves. So another question is uh, when you come down to the actual bottling of it, right? I mean, I, I had known that, or, you know, Chris, I think you had mentioned 96. Um, uh, proof is what you all do. I mean, is there is there a, a proof or is that part of something that is very you know, experimental weighted amongst your, your own brands. Is anybody doing barrel proof yet? Like what, what's kind of your all's ideas around there too? I'd say it's weighted, you know, individually for the brands for us while our mainstay ragtime rye, which in the future will, will be a legitimate empire. rye, is not today because the mash bill uh, we currently have available doesn't quite meet the requirements. We bottle that at 90.4 when we get to having our ragtime rye empire rye, it'll probably be 90.4. The offering we have today with the Applejack barrel finish, we experimented with in several places, but really loved it at, at a um, hundred proof, which frankly might be another bottle and bond candidate down the road, but it was all, you know, that's really the pleasure of it in, in many ways is the experimentation of seeing if you've got a product that you feel is ready for public consumption is ready for the real world and experimenting with with where you might where you might offer it whether it's on its own neat on the rocks again in a cocktail which you know again by history i think a lot of rye whiskey also because it has that little bit of more forward edge to it through rye through the spice of rye that it, it's really a component that goes great in cocktails so you want it to be able to still stand out with with other modifiers mm -hmm. Brian or Alan, or sorry, Brian or uh, Chris, anything to add to that? Yeah, I think that bottle proof is just, you know, it's one of those things where that's open-ended. Um, we go in at 96, and that's largely a practical matter. I, I, I believe, for the most part, a little bit of water uh, should be added to, to a spirit, uh, you know, whole undistilled water, just to give it, because remember, when you're, when you're distilling, you're, you're creating you know, distilled ethanol and distilled water. I think a little minerality added back into the, into the whiskey gives it just you know, a little something for the mouthfeel, a little something to bounce those flavors off of. We go in at 96 to the bottle, uh, mostly just because that's just above, we don't chill filter at Copper Sea and we also don't use, um, we use very simple direct fired copper pot stills. So we, we produce a very oily whiskey. And uh, anything, I think it's, I think it's 95.3 is the is the threshold where where a non-chill filtered whiskey will actually below that it'll throw chill haze 
it'll loosh up in the bottle if you get the bottle cold. So, you know, in a cold liquor store, a very oily whiskey will actually like just turn into a glob, like a cloudy glob in the bottle. So that's why we go in at 96. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's just important to leave that at the discretion of the uh, the distiller. Um, we like our whiskey at 91 proof, our Mackenzie Rye. Uh, we'll be branding that with the, the Empire uh, mark. Um, but when we did the uh, release, we wanted to uh, show people what it tasted like at, at cask strength and before we put a uh, sherry uh, finish on it. So we did a single barrel uh, at our Empire Rye uh, event um, that we did this past fall, um, and that was at cask strength. And so one other thing Chris hinted at was that there's another thing with inside the standards that's saying that uh, a blended whiskey containing no less than 100% of qualifying Empire Rye whiskeys from multiple distilleries may still be called a blended Empire Rye. So are you all looking at doing collaborations or is there a day when you're going to think that, oh, we've got too many barrels and now we can sell some and then some people can go and create their own uh, sourced version of Empire Rye? So kind of, uh, kind of give your thoughts on that. All of the above. <laughs> watch, yeah. watch, watch this space. Right. Um, yeah, I think that. Uh, so we, we, I think we want to, we want to elevate this concept. Uh, you know, I think that there is a very, there's a great strength in, in categorical distinctions. So all of us out here, you know, a, a few of us make a bunch of different things. You know, some of us make other expressions of whiskey. Uh, some of us make other non-whiskey spirits, and. But at the same time, we see there's a there's a there's a value to Kentucky bourbon. Okay, I make a bourbon. Uh, Brian makes a bourbon, but you know people still have this this very rightly uh, associated reverence for a style that was born and raised in Kentucky. They have a a very uh, clear idea of what Tennessee whiskey is, what single malt Scotch is, what single pot still Irish whiskey is. So creating strength through category is a a time tested strategy for getting attention and respect for what you're doing. So all of us kind of making a single thing is one great thing, but it also just brings attention to New York rye in general and New York and New York spirits in general. Um, and to, to whatever extent we can do that, this is a success, but certainly if, you know, Five or ten years from now, there's a thriving blended rye whiskey, blended empire whis- empire rye whiskey uh, industry going, and you've we'll got people exactly. <laughs> you know, maybe there one day, maybe there will just be a, be a Johnny Walker of empire rye, somebody who doesn't necessarily have a a distillery, but who creates a strong brand by contracting and sourcing with all of us for our versions of empire rye to create a distinctive. A distinctive product in, in their own right. That'd be pretty dope. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. If you want to get in the ground floor, here's your opportunity. Right? What he said. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I kind of want to wrap it up a little bit of, of kind of talking about the growth of, of where this is going to go because, you know, looking at the, the website right now at Empire Rye, you've got uh, another seven distilleries that are also going to be committing to. Uh, developing and creating an empire rye looks like a lot of the expected release dates around fall of 2019. Uh, where do you kind of go? Do you, do you kind of see a lot of the New York distilleries all jumping on board with this and, and what's kind of the next phase of it? It's been, you know, tremendous uh, 
interest in it amongst the the distilling community in New York. We've got, uh, I think we're second or third in the country in terms of number of distilleries now. And, uh, you know, people are quickly um, jumping on board uh, to make their version of Empire Rye. So I think it's only going to, you know, grow over the next uh, few years. You know, some of the logical opportunities, we got, again, such a, a broad state from an agricultural standpoint, from an urban standpoint here in New York City. Uh, there's great opportunities just to taste people on this varied products within one subset category of Empire Rye. And so I think the more opportunities that we can give them and the more products that are available just create greater enthusiasm. Uh, as a group, we did launch... Uh, New York Rye Week last year. We'll, we'll be hosting that again, uh, certainly in, in Brooklyn and New York City, and maybe even efforts for a more concerted, concerted New York Rye Month uh, that we can involve retailers and bars and restaurants to, frankly, further help us promote the types of efforts we're putting forth. And as, as the numbers increase, I think that only will develop a, a greater enthusiasm and hopefully broader spectrum of what people are tasting from New York Rye Whiskey as well. And we actually, I'll, I'll mention that we actually have, I, I need to update that website. There's, uh, there's another two distilleries. So the total is actually nine. So there's another two distilleries that have confirmed that they've put, put rye, uh, Empire Rye compliant liquid in oak. And so in, in two years, we'll have you know, nine additional distilleries. And, and because I like to kind of be, occasionally be a, an enfant terrible and, uh, and throw some controversy out into the world, I will say this is kind of a cheeky comment, but in terms of sheer buy-in, to the category as a concept. Empire Rye is now more legitimate than Tennessee whiskey is in the sense that, you know, there's what we have three distilleries in Tennessee making Tennessee whiskey. And we now have, you know, we have seven plus another nine coming in New York state making Empire Rye. So we're, we're a bigger category than Tennessee whiskey already. Now, given Jack Daniel's daily output, together in a year, but, uh, but, you know, just in terms of the number of distilleries that do it, you know, we're, we're bigger than Tennessee whiskey. I'll also note, and this is our pride in the, Nicole Austin, uh, also was, who was instrumental in the development of, Kings, of, uh, of uh, Empire Rye, uh, who was involved in that debate. She used to be uh, the, the master blender at Kings County Distilling in Brooklyn, and she just got called up to be the uh, head distiller and manager of what, what used to be called the Dickel Distillery. Uh, now Cascade Hollow. So uh, an Empire Rye founder now trying to uh, buoy up Tennessee whiskey. There we go. So there's there's other roads ahead for possibly everyone then, right? Well, just I'm, all I'm saying is <laughs> look to New York. There you go. And, and so there was another question that kind of rolled in and they kind of want to know, like uh, Frank said, you know, is there is there a different taste profile that's coming out of New York Rye that you can't get out of, uh, or sorry, out of Empire Rye that you can't get out of other ryes that are on the market today, um, you know, is it is there just something that's different, the taste profile, or is it really like a, a, a thing of you know, you know, hooray, pride New York, that that sort of thing? Like, what's what's the? I'd look at a couple things. One is you know, again, different than bourbon, you know, where there maybe none, virtually no bourbons that are fifty one percent rye. There are a whole, excuse me, fifty one percent corn on the bourbon side. On the rye side, you know, the preservation of rye as a category has really, up until recently, been left to the major players out of Kentucky. Hands down, they make fantastic whiskey. But 
to a brand, almost all of them are actually 51% rye. So one, there's a few little substrates here. One, most of the rye, and frankly, yes, not just coming out of New York, but out of craft distilleries in different parts of the country, most of these ryes are looking for different profiles, something that harkens back to whether it's a, a, an authentic age from the colonial era uh, or post, um, but also, again, what might be inherent to, to the rye grown in our region. So one, as you heard from all of us, you know, just whether it's the, the empire rye set at a minimum of 75% in the mash bill or higher, uh, that in and of itself is pretty unique in this day and age. Uh, for us, again, you know, it depends on the specific variety of the grain, but we are finding some interesting tropical notes that are coming, you know, between two, three, and four-year-old rye whiskeys that I think is something we're going to try and expand on and in the most positive ways, exploit if we can. Well, awesome. Uh, lastly, last question coming from Jan. By the way, Jan is uh, very excited because uh, there's three distilleries within 20 minutes are these distillery-only releases, or what's the distribution right now that you can find available? Yeah. Well, Again, Mark, everybody's, uh, everybody's kind of doing it in a different way. So some, some of us might have their standard whiskey. Uh, like, for instance, our Mackenzie Rye will be an Empire Rye whiskey, um, and it's widely distributed. But, um, you know, there may be others that, that uh, are in the business of, distilling brandy and they just want to make a, an empire rye for their, their tasting room. So it's going to, it's going to vary. Our ragtime rye with the Applejack finish, again, our qualifying empire rye is available in about 40 stores around New York city. It's also available at our distillery on our end. It's just a matter of how much we can make. So we, it is a, a limited time offering that we'll offer seasonally right now. Our plans are annually between September and March. Uh, Copper Seas, Bonnecue Crag, Straight Rye Malt is, you know, that's our, that's our flagship product now. You know, we pretty much went all in and uh, is widely available where, where fine spirits are sold in the New York market. Um, but then, you know, we're, I'm aware of several of the other distilleries who are uh, pushing to, to produce more of it, to make it a regular offering. And then some others are, are again, just putting their toe in the water, sort of, you know, they want to be involved and they want to see how it goes, but don't necessarily, a lot of these guys are also just making a really good rye already. Um, and, uh, and I encourage people to drink New York rye of any stripe, uh, whether it's an empire rye or not, because they're, they're, they're all pretty excellent. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, but people are super excited about it. I mean, What's also fun for me is I go do market work down in the city and, you know, I think my, my, uh, my partner, uh, the CEO of our company kind of gives me guff about it sometimes when he hears me doing it, but I'll, I'll sit there and talk, I'll sit there and try to sell somebody a bottle of, of Mackenzie rye or a bottle of, uh, of ragtime rye, because what I'm saying is we do the same. It's, I'm yeah, like, it's do a flight. Here's the power of this concept. Don't just buy mine in buy in at least two or three other examples so that pe you can get people excited about it. And, and those who have done it have already gotten back to us about how successful it is. So. Well, awesome. I think that that's a good way to kind of wrap this up is that you need to, you need to try everybody's to make sure you can really uh, have a, have a very, uh, you know, 
way of, of tasting everything, whether it's coming from, uh, you know, Brooklyn or other different parts of New York. Right. So that's, that's definitely awesome. So I want to give you guys uh, one last opportunity just quickly to kind of say uh, who you are, what you represent and how they can get in contact with you. Uh, Brian, go ahead first. So again, Brian McKenzie, the owner of Finger Lakes Distilling here on Seneca Lake in upstate New York. Uh, our flagship products are McKenzie whiskeys, bourbon and rye. Uh, you can find us uh, at our website, fingerlakesdistilling.com, uh, as well as through all the social media channels. Thanks again for the opportunity. You got it. Alan. Alan Katz with New York Distilling Company here in Brooklyn. And our rye whiskey offerings are Ragtime Rye and Ragtime Rye with the Applejack Barrel Finish. And you can find us at nydistilling.com. And I'd say keep an eye out for uh, Rye Week and Rye Month activities in October, uh, both on the Empire Rye website and I'm sure at all of our colleagues as well. And I'm Christopher Williams, Chief Distiller of Copper Sea Distilling. We are in uh, Ulster County in the heart of the Hudson Valley, God's own country. And uh, we, uh, we make Bonnecue Crag Straight Rye Malt, which is our Empire Rye. And please check out the EmpireRye.com website and, uh, and Copper Sea if you want to get in touch with me. Christopher at CopperSea.com if you want to email me. Happy to answer any questions. Awesome. Well, fellas, thank you again. Make sure you're following all these people on social media. Make sure you definitely check out EmpireRye.com and you can get a little bit more information on the standards. Uh, these gentlemen, their distilleries, as well as the other committed distillers that are coming up and through uh, with inside of New York. And you can get a little bit more idea about that. Make sure you're following us as well, Bourbon Pursuit on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you hear, please support the podcast, patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bourbon Pursuit. And you can have the opportunity to join in and ask questions as you just heard today from our Patreon members. So it was great, great discussion. If you have any other show suggestions, uh, people you want to see, topics you want to hear about, uh, fan mail, hate mail, whatever it is, the duo at bourbonpursuit.com. With that, gentlemen, thank you again for joining, and we will see everyone next week. 